Hi everyone, this is Aaron Larson, Executive Editor of Power Magazine, and you're listening to the Power Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jeff Lyash. Jeff is the President and CEO of the Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA. I had a chance to sit down and talk with Jeff after the TVA's board meeting on Wednesday, May 10th. I began the conversation by asking him to tell a little bit about himself and his background. Yeah, certainly. Well, so in terms of background, my both my wife Tracy and I grew up in north central Pennsylvania in a, in a little mining and mill town in the mountains there. And so I said it last night at dinner, and one of my grandfathers was a coal miner, the other one was a lineman for the power company. And so, you know, if you want to know about me, that's probably where you need to start. It's uh, it's all about hard work and commitment and character and, you know, making sure you're making a contribution and and trying to be frank and transparent about what you got to do. And, and by training, I'm an engineer. So I spent my career uh, in the power business 40 years, building, operating, maintaining uh, everything from solar and wind to nuclear and transmission here in the U.S. and some internationally. I've been here at TVA as the, as the CEO for uh, working on five years and frankly just couldn't be happier about being here. You know, I grew up with those two grandfathers who were young during the Depression. One of them worked in the Civilian Conservation Corps, I said last night. And so I remember learning about FDR and the New Deal in elementary school. And I very vividly remember uh, learning about TVA. And what struck me about it then was these mammoth moves that would fundamentally change people's lives and the region and how great that was. I would never have imagined that I would ever be the CEO of TVA. So, and immediately before I here, I came from Ontario Power, which is one of the bigger generating companies in, in Canada. And before that, a number of other companies, including Duke Energy and, and the like. So it's a, it's a business I feel like I know a lot about and I can contribute in. And it's a mission here at TVA that I really love. Because I spent a lot of my career working to make shareholders happy. I don't make shareholders happy anymore. I make 10 million people in the Valley successful. That's the job. I think you're doing a great job at it. We've had a few days here to visit different facilities and talk to a lot of the people that you have out there working and, and doing the jobs that are so important to this community. Next week, you're going to be celebrating your 90th anniversary. What does it mean to you to be working for uh, agency that has been around for so long and has affected so many people. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? I, I was reflecting the other day, so I did a little detective work. I looked back to 1933 when TVA was founded at who were the biggest 100, 200 companies in the country and how many of them still exist. I can count that number on one hand. Wow. Maybe two if I stretch a little bit. So TVA is in rare company because it's an institution that's not been successful. It's been successful over nine decades. Now, not without bumps in the road. There are some chapters of TVA's history that you might not hold up there as the shining example, but, but overall, really uh, a persistent, continuous march toward the mission, which is energy, the environment, and economic development, and levering those to make people's lives better. 
so that's the first thing I take away from 90 years worth of history is all of the attributes that made this so durable. And, you know, a, a central approach that I find remarkable, I said it in my comments today. It's one of the reflections as I thought about why. It's that TVA never took an action that was one thing or something that was only for the next year. Everything TVA did was born out of thinking about the long term and the whole integrated set of things that have to be done to produce that outcome. And I think it did that because it always expected to be here for 90 years. It, it never expected to be here for 10 years and turn it over to somebody else. Uh, and if you do that, you, you build a workforce, you build a culture, and that's what's impressive to me about TVA. The, the, probably the most important thing to take away from that 90 years, though, is that it took us 90 years to produce this, and uh, we're going to have to build this again in the next 20 years. Mm. Right? So it's, you, you, you're going you're gonna to dramatically increase the amount of electrical production. You, you're going to see that growth, and it has to be served. And you have to do it while you're reducing carbon to zero. And you're going to have to retire a lot of assets in the, in the mix. So the challenge, I, I see that a lot like the challenge TVA had at the outset. TVA had to electrify the South and produce innovation that would help others do the same. And now we're going to have to electrify the economy. And we're going to have to produce technologies that do that. So I, I think the next 90 years has a, a lot of similarity to the last 90. And I know you talked about it today during the board meeting about the growth that this area is having. It's like, I think you said, six times greater than the national average. What makes this area so attractive to companies that are moving and coming here and, and setting up shop? Yeah, well, and that answer is not all about TVA, so let me say that up front. It's a great part of the country to live in, natural beauty. You know, just look around where you are here today, Norris Lake, the Great Smoky Mountains. You know, if I, it's, it would be similar if we went down into northern Alabama or Georgia, right? Uh, you, you know, you go to Memphis and you have Bluff City and the, and the, the Mississippi River. It's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, it's uh, it's got a, a culture that, you know, despite some of the issues it's had historically, it's a very welcoming culture. You can come here and feel at home pretty quickly. I think it its location, its climate, uh, the the pro business uh, supportive environment, all these things attract people here. I like to think the TBA is part of attracting them here too. And our contribution to that is a number of things. One of our three focuses is economic development. So we want to attract business. And we do that very successfully. And principally, we want to attract the businesses that are going to have the durable capital and jobs of the future. So, you know, it should be apparent, why did we go hard after electric vehicle manufacturing and battery manufacturing? and the first solar solar panel manufacturing in Alabama. It's, it's because if we want to attract jobs and capital, but to the extent we can, we want them to make, we want to make those attractions be the future that's going to help transform the economy and the energy industry. 
So to the extent you can make those overlap, that's the sweet, the sweet spot. People love what we do with the environment. Go take a walk on the trails on the Clinch River, put a boat in Norris Lake, go over to Fort Loudon, right, go down to Joe Wheeler. Taking those natural resources and making them accessible and available to people is a big part of quality of life. And so economic development and the environment, that's part two. And part three is energy. And so today, TVA's uh, industrial power rates are lower than 95% of the utilities in the country. So if part of your variable cost is power, you're going to be happy here. Our reliability is some of the best in the country. Uh, and uh, business leaders tell me time and time again, I'm going to invest a lot of capital in a factory and jobs. Uh, I love the fact that I can count on your power being reliable. And, and that's important. And more and more, it's about carbon intensity. And TVA has one of the lowest carbon intensities in the country and has reduced carbon some of the most in the country. And that's a challenge because we have to keep that trajectory going. It's not always clear and it's not going to be easy. But I, I think that's, that's why people come here. And I like to think TVA contributes to all that. You talked a little bit about the carbon-free energy. I know during your um, presentation today, you talked about a goal of, I think, 10,000 megawatts of, of solar, and nuclear is obviously very important to the TVA portfolio. Can you talk about what you're doing and how you see that going forward as uh, important to your mission? Yeah. Uh, we, we at TVA are very outcome focus. So we spend a lot of time talking about, at the end of this trail, where is it we want to arrive at? Okay. Um, what does the outcome look like that we have to produce? And so with s some controversy, I I'll say it's not all about renewables. Our objective isn't all renewables, because I don't think all renewables is practical nor optimum. It's about affordable energy that's reliable and resilient and low carbon, lower zero carbon. Renewables plays a big role in that. Just like I will say, it's not all about nuclear. It's not all about storage. It's not all about demand side management energy efficiency. But it is about every single one of those in the right mix to get the outcome we want. So. If I focus in, I always start there because anything I talk about from here on out is just a piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole thing. Renewables, you know, we went out, um, we watched the development of uh, <coughs> solar technologies. We watched the cost curve. Actually, TVA had a solar incentive program for residential solar for 20 years. We're not new to this. And when we felt like the technology had gotten to the point where its price was an acceptable, in an acceptable balance, um, we began a solar build-out. So we, put, we said we would build at least 10,000 megawatts, that we would do that by 2035. That was an outcome. In fact, we put 3,200 megawatts in the pipeline. It's coming into service now. We decided to go out for the country's largest clean energy RFP, clean energy. So we would have accepted anything that admitted no carbon. And 
we in fact have decided that there are 6,000 megawatts worth of clean energy projects work striking on. So we didn't let the, the stated RFP limit us. We leaned as far into it as we could. And we, we think that, so hopefully if, if those are uh, successful, they'll come on line between 26 and 29. That gets us almost to our 10,000 megawatts before 2030. And so, and we'll keep pushing that uh, to the extent we can because we think it's a big part of the clean energy portfolio. At the same time, we're, um, uh, with much less fanfare, we've upgraded and improved the performance of our nuclear plant and finished Watts Bar Unit 2. So our nuclear fleet now is 42% of our generation mix. All those plants are top quartile in the industry, and by 2025, that will be the best nuclear fleet in the country because it's important. And, and we'll develop new nuclear uh, because we think it's got to be a part of the solution. I just wanted to mention there has been some fanfare because Power Magazine did honor the Watts Bar Unit 2 as the plan of the year back in, I think, 2018. Yeah. And we also gave an award for the power upgrade at Browns Ferry for a top plan award a few years ago, which I wrote a story about. So uh, there has been fanfare. I should have come and spoke at the listening section <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> But I want to talk a little bit more about the nuclear because we have uh, visited with several people. We were out at the Browns Ferry plant. About the Clinch River project, can you talk a little bit about how that might play out? I know you're looking at the economics, and it's got a pencil out is what we heard. Can you uh, kind of explain the, th the thought process behind that? Yeah, so as, as we think about 2050... You know, our estimate is we'll see between 50 and 100% load growth by 2050. That comes from three things. People moving into the area, success in economic development, recruiting jobs, which any onshoring is just going to amplify, and electrification. Right? And, you know, some people think of electrification just as transportation. That's a big part of it. But we have businesses every week who are looking for ways to decrease their carbon emissions and one of the ways they can do that is to become electric because the net with TVA's carbon profile is a big benefit. So, I mean, I can give you an example and I won't name a name. If you're an auto manufacturer, you have a big heat load to dry paint on these vehicles and you probably do this with natural gas right now. But if you can reduce your scope one emissions by electrifying that process, you have solved the big corporate ESG problem for yourself, and you've helped the environment because net, we can do that. You'll be lower carbon emissions net with, okay. So these things are going to drive this growth. This is where nuclear fits. Push renewables, build storage. We have got to build some gas to integrate all this and transition. Uh, I cannot make the math work out to grow electrics consumption and to retire coal and lower gas without new nuclear. And there is no point in building one reactor because it's not significant enough. You, you have to create a fleet of reactors and an industry that can move from nth of a kind cost schedule and risk, from first of a kind cost schedule and risk to nth of a kind cost schedule and risk. And you have to try to make n equal two. So it isn't theoretical in over 20 years. It's exactly what does it take. First of all, you have to accept that the first-of-a-kind cost and schedule and risk are going to be high. 
And you shouldn't do it unless you're committed to shed those risks, learn those lessons, drive yourself down that cost curve until you can build a fleet. So I, I've said very vocally, I have one, nothing to do with building one reactor unless I can build 20. And 20 is the low estimate. And so this is what Clinch River is about. We picked the BWRX 300 technology because the X stands for the 10th generation. And so we know this fuel works, we know this technology works, we know it takes 50 years worth of experience, applies modularization, advanced manufacturing techniques, technology, in making that design leap forward. This allows us to focus on what I think the risk is that's yet to be proven, and that is can we uh, finish a first of a kind on schedule and on budget, and can we demonstrate the movement to nth of a kind rapidly, and can we turn that into a fleet? That's what Clinch River is about. So we intend Clinch River to be a four-unit site. You know, there's an optimum way to build four units. It includes a lot of overlap supply chain, labor, et cetera. That's what we want to develop, but we're going to unlap the first unit so that we can learn all those lessons, identify all those risks, and make units two and three and four look significantly better and different so that when we build site two, three, and four, uh, we've, we've got that. And we're doing this because it takes it to get to our 2050 outcome, but because of TVA's special role, we're really doing it to support the nation because what we'd really love to happen is fast followers. It's a long answer, but I want to put in one other point. We're also engaged in Gen 4 technologies. Um, we, we are, uh, we are act working actively with X Energy on their high temperature gas cooled reactor. As a matter of fact, their TRISO fuel plant's going to be here at Oak Ridge. We're working with uh, TerraPower on the natrium, that molten uh, salt reactor. Uh, we have a very active partnership with Kairos, who's a molten fluoride salt uh, reactor. Uh, as a matter of fact, Hermes One, the test reactor, is going to be built. It's just finishing licensing, going to build, build at Oak Ridge. Uh, and so we're supportive of those. I see those as great long-term technologies. And our view, it's our nuclear strategy is three parts optimize, leverage, and extend the lives of the existing nuclear plants, demonstrate you can deploy a generation three plus small modular light water reactor at scale, and then develop generation four technologies that can not only produce electricity, but process heat to decarbonize industry. And that's how this fits together for us. And I know you have a partnership with OPG kind of on this technology. Was your history with OPG any make that any easier to get uh, put in place? Well, thankfully, I don't think it hurt. <laughs> uh, you'll have to ask the, my, uh, the OPG folks that, who I think incredibly highly of. So the history you're referring to is before I was the CEO of TV, I was the CEO of OPG. Yeah. The, these two... Well, first, why does partnership make sense? Well, you know, my view from the beginning is this is best done in partnership. And it's best done that way because, again, we're not trying to build one reactor and we're not trying to just do it for TVA. So by partnering with OPG, OPG is just finishing up a successful $13 billion mega project refurbishment of Darlington. A lot of the lessons you have to learn 
to make sure this project looks better than Vogel in terms of execution. We learned with the Darlington refurbishment. All right? So OPG has that experience they bring to the table. Uh, we, on the other hand, have 50 years worth of light water reactor operating experience, plenty of experience with boiling water reactors. And so they're a heavy water can-do reactor operator. So as we're doing the design and the constructability and how you train and stand up a staff, that's our contribution. Synthos, if you look to Europe and drew the map of who are the most carbon-intense nations in Europe, Poland sits at the top of the stack. And so they need a technology they can deploy to hit their carbon targets. So they're a great candidate for nuclear deployment. And, and so that represents an international market if we're successful. Why is that important? Well, if you're going to scale this, you have to scale it. You have to have a book of business. You have to have owners who are willing to build uh, so that you get the investment in the supply chain and the workforce development to do it. And so the reason for partnering with OPG Synthos in this effort is because, again, we're trying to produce the outcome, and the outcome is as, as I stated. OPG and TVA are similar. OPG is a corporation owned by Ontario. And so the service focus of OPG is very similar to TVA. Because of that, uh, OPG's focus, like TVA's, is on the long-term objectives. We retired the coal in Ontario. We refurbished and upgraded the nuclear. We built hydro facilities and pump storage facilities, the very things we want to do here. So the similarity in the cultures and the missions of the two organizations made the partnership easy, and the fact that we know each other very well helps too. Some other things, you know, you mentioned that OPG had retired their coal fleet. I know TVA is working toward that in, I think, 2036 or 2035. So those coal units are an important part of the fleet right now. They're well-performing. We've actually given them awards as well. I wrote a Shawnee top plant, and I've given a top plant to Gallatin. So I know they perform very well. What's it going to look like as those start going away, and how are you going to make up the difference in addition to growing load? It's a big challenge. You know, I have to start out by acknowledging that on the one hand, we have the oldest coal fleet in the country. On the other hand, the folks here have made those plants perform extremely well. Uh, and I think sometimes as a society, we can be so critical of coal that we forget that it's the way we built the standard of living we have today. And that the broader environmental benefits from electrifying the economy and raising people's quality of life are huge and, and were supported by that build-out. That doesn't mean you don't change. Absent some new technology which could, could emerge at some point, I, I think it's time to sunset those plants and replace them with other, uh, other technologies. The, the key here is, you, as some might suggest, just do this all right now. It, it's not the wise thing to do. You have to do it in a controlled manner. 
look, I know people want us to rapidly decarbonize. I want to do that too. The surest way to fail to do that is to make electricity unaffordable or unreliable because the whole thing gets thrown in reverse. All you have to do to look is look at Europe and you can see that when it comes down to a choice between energy security and decarbonization, people choose energy security because they must. What we have to do is not make them make that choice because you don't have to make that choice. The way to do it is, and it's why we came out and said, by 2035, we'd like to retire the coal units because that gives us the time to build the assets that we need. What are those assets? Well, every megawatt of solar we build produces a certain amount of energy, and that energy can reduce the amount of energy we need from the coal plant, so the amount of coal we burn. Today, our coal fleet is less than 15% of our energy. But what people have to recognize is that's not the only thing those plants do. They provide capacity, which means uh, it's there when you need it. And the power they provide adds stability to the system so that it can come through events, whether that's high or low peaks or failures on the system due to tornadoes or hurricanes or lightning strikes or any one of a number of things. It's a resiliency issue. And so certainly solar will help displace some of the energy we have to build assets like gas, aeroderivatives, simple cycle, combined cycle to replace the capacity and add flexibility as we develop technologies like nuclear and storage and demand side load shaping technologies. And the, the mix of those over time has to allow us to displace the coal. And then there are two other considerations. Those are incredibly well-performing and valuable workforces. And so we have to allow enough time to transition them into new technologies, new skills. You know, I, I have yet to see a qualified, capable coal worker at one of those plants be unsuccessful in any other job we put them in in the company. We have nuclear plant operators who came from our coal fleet. Fantastic. Uh, the, the last consideration is, especially for us because economic development is part of our mission, when you pull those people out of a community, you have left a hole. And so we have to have time to do economic development. If we're not going to redevelop the site, and sometime, in some cases we might, we have to have time to do economic development to pull in investment and jobs there. I mean, a good example is Widow's Creek. We retired Widow's Creek, but we recruited a Google data center, capital jobs, and solar, and we put a solar facility there to sort of help fill the economic void that's left. You talked a little bit about storage. I know we went to the Raccoon Mountain facility and got a tour. It was phenomenal. I know you're thinking about more of these pump storage type facilities because that is the the majority of large scale storage that's available and it lasts longer and you can use it for, you know, days instead of hours as you could with a battery. How important do you think pump storage is to your operation? I, I think it is potentially a critical resource to us. It, it's a 
it's an enabler and accelerator for what we have to do. Now, first of all, I, I got to acknowledge not everybody has the topography to do pumped hydro. But one of the things I've learned is that energy resources by their nature are always regional. Maybe with the exception of nuclear, which you can, you know, because of the nature of the fuel cycle, you can do anywhere. We're going to build solar. We're never going to build as much solar as gets built in Arizona because our solar incidents and our weather patterns just don't support it. So they have something we don't have. We may import more wind from Kansas and Oklahoma, but wind's not a good resource in Tennessee. And so that's an, they have an advantage we don't have. One of the advantages we have is the, is the hydroelectric fleet and the topography to do this kind of storage. So we're de right now we're deploying about 170 megawatts of lithium-ion battery-based storage on the system. And, uh, and our clean energy RFP has storage as a standalone resource and storage paired with solar that we'll do. And I think that technology is good. It has its limitations. On our system, I think it'll deploy in a distributed way. It'll help local resiliency and it'll help us with some offload the transmission system in some cases. But really to get where we need, you need a bulk energy storage technology. Big at a system scale. Pumped hydro is fantastic. Uh, not only because you can do it at scale, but because they're synchronous generators. So the stability they add to the system and, they, and that the operating characteristics they bring inverter-based battery storage can never, it can never replace. So we are investing, if you were at Mountain, you saw, we're investing in that plant. You know, I think, I can't remember if we finished the final units switching contactors and gear, but we're close. We have the capability to get more out of Raccoon Mountain, and we're likely to do that. More capacity and more energy. We have been playing about the fact that we've launched a programmatic EIS for additional pumped hydro storage. The system could easily fully utilize three more Raccoon Mountains. In uh, Raccoon Mountain, for your listeners, that's about 1,700 megawatts. But it's 1,700 megawatts that can provide that consistently for 27 hours. And so we've got sites that are, are amenable to this. Much like any really valuable technology, it's not inexpensive. So it takes a commitment to run the big capital project up front, but it's an asset, it's a durable asset that's good for 50, 100 years and brings huge value. It's one of those assets, just like a nuclear plant, that you know people at the front end say, oh my God, it's expensive and it takes a long time. Why would you do that? And then 10 years later, it's the best thing you ever did. <laughs> and that's the way pump storage is gonna play out. I can't say we're going to do it, but I can say if we don't, there'll be good reason because this could be a very valuable asset, would be a very valuable asset to the system. And the other aspect that you know they talked about when we were at the site is it can be used basically for 3,400 megawatts of swing because you can start charging basically by pumping for 1,700 megawatts or discharging by you know using it as a hydro for 1,700. So you know, just a great recent example during Winter Storm Elliott we flowed Raccoon Mountain down across those peaks. It was an important resource. 
and as soon as the load dropped below the available vent generation, one unit at a time, those became pumps. And we took all that energy and pumped it back up, and we floated down the very next night over that same peak. You know, I think about, people often think about storage paired with the intermittency of renewables. And I think that's right. I, but I typically don't think about it that way. So as I consider our system, I think about dispatchable zero carbon electricity, let's say a nuclear fleet, maybe there's other technology that'll come to play that can do this, that runs full out. Our Browns Ferry unit that we're at just finished a 665 day run, breaker to breaker, 24 seven. Those plants run and I think about pumped hydro as being able to store that energy and move it around and then renewables doing whatever they do, right? So as opposed to the storage paired with the renewables, I think about the renewables delivering whatever they can deliver to the system over whatever hours of the day they can deliver and the powerful pairing of nuclear with pumped hydro as being the way that you follow the load, right? As much renewables as you can get, nuclear base loaded, and pumped hydro to follow the load uh, as a as sort of a mental model to consider this. And that's where I see the value of that pumped hydro. Sure. No, that makes great sense. I know you've given me a lot of time already, but one last question for you is about during the, the board meeting, you came out with your sustainability report. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and maybe what the next 10 to 15 years looks like for you as, as you move forward with the TVA and, and just kind of what you see for a vision. Well, so, so, you know, we've been talking about the power system and, and uh, sustainability certainly is about the power system. And it, there, my definition of sustainability, is, which I'll repeat over and over again, is affordable electricity, a plentiful affordable reliable, which is this lights will be on all the time and rarely will they go out. Resilient, which is different than reliability. Resiliency is how the system performs when that thing you either didn't expect to happen or didn't want to happen inevitably happens. Uh, extreme weather, fuel disruption, rail strike, cyber attack, pandemic. Okay, resiliency, and then clean, and increasingly so. Uh, and so, for me, that's a sustainable electricity supply, and you, you have to work all four of those. Uh, a decarbonized power system that's too expensive for you to afford isn't of any use to anybody. Uh, a affordable, clean energy system that you can't rely on isn't very helpful either. And so, that's that's what we work toward but for tva particularly because of our economic development and environmental stewardship role sustainability has a broader definition than that we think about the air the water the forests the lands you heard rebecca talk about our biodiversity program uh, we have put a lot of time and effort in the last number of years at building 
based on best practices of biodiversity program and trying to demonstrate the positive impacts of that. And you, you see that. She gave some examples with the snail darter, but I, I could give you a hundred other examples. You just think about the health of the fisheries, you know, our pollinators program, just broadly. So we think about it in terms of the environment. And then in economic development, uh, for us, it's, it's about getting good jobs and good industries that head in this same direction. I mean, the headline example is our electric vehicle industry, as an example, that moves you down this path. And a part of that economic development strategy has got to be to make sure that economic development uh, spreads in a different way and more evenly than it has in the past. Uh, so that everybody here in the Tennessee Valley has an opportunity. You, you don't have to live in Nashville which is growing like crazy to have the opportunity. You can live in Paris, Tennessee, or Milan, Tennessee. Don't call it Milan. So for us, these are all parts of what sustainability means. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, it's a pleasure talking with you. I can tell you that if I ever lose my job at Power, TVA is going to be the first place I look for a new job because I'm really impressed with everything you guys have going on and everything that you do. So thank you again for all of your time, Jeff. Well, it's a, a thank you for your time. And it's a, it's a great place to live. It's an unbelievable workforce. Never worked with a group of people more committed than this. Uh, and the, the partnerships, whether you're talking about our communities, the local power companies we serve, our labor partners, uh, they are strong and getting stronger. And we need that to be the case if we're going to do what we need to do.